Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 63rd edition of the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with Barbara Orbison, the German second wife of the legendary American singer-songwriter and musician Roy Orbison. Roy died at the age of 52 on December 6, 1988. Barbara died age 60, also on December 6, but in 2011. I interviewed Barbara in London in 1997, following the successful release by Virgin of the very best of Roy Orbison album. We don't know much about your life before you met Roy. Could you give us a very brief account of your life before? Yes, I'm German-born and raised. I basically was still in school when I met Roy. So it was a very brief life. I was 17 years old. Were you from a musical background yourself? No, nobody ever in my family made, made their life or supported them, themselves through music. My father is um, it's a businessman. He's a very successful businessman. Can you remind us of how and when you met him? I met Roy in 1968 in Leeds, England. And what were you doing in Leeds, England, and what was he doing in Leeds, I England? Was, I had um, a girlfriend that was studying architecture there, and I was 17, and she must have been 18 because she must have started to study. And I went to see her there to pick her up. She lived in Norfolk. So we were there for three nights, and I met Roy. And I gather you were in a nightclub the night you met Roy. Mm-hmm. Roy and I desperately tried to hide that for a number of years because we were in a discotheque and Roy never hardly went to discotheques and, and plus both of us felt that such a significant occasion as when we met really uh, was God's humorous joke to have put us both into a discotheque mm. <laughs> so so what was he doing there was he after a concert was he just sort of letting his hair down as it were mm, I don't know I think he had probably a date with fate What's your, what's your first memory of Roy? Probably passing him by as I was going to the dance floor. And he was coming into the club, because it was a big occasion for that club to have Roy Orbison come visit. So you were aware that Roy Orbison was in there, a oh, star was in there? Yeah. No, no, that he was going to come. He just stopped by. I just barely knew who Roy Orbison was. I knew he was somebody important to the people at the club because they were all, like, whispering. I knew the song Pretty Woman... And I had heard it's over, and that was all. I was asked by the owner to come and to say hello to, to Roy. Probably said, why should I? And he said, because he's a very nice man. Then the owner came back a couple of times and said, please. And I said, no, I don't want to. And he said, please, please. Or something. And then finally I said, okay, I'm going to come over there. I'm going to say hello. And I remember him kind of pulling me out of my seat to kind of get me to go over there. And I did. And I said, hello, I guess he introduced us, and Roy started talking to me. Roy never told me so that he actually saw me and sent somebody over there and actually sent them. But I never knew. Had you had a relationship before that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did, I did. I did quite a bit. Presumably, then, you said you only knew one or two of his records. You weren't aware of his personal history at that stage. No. Didn't have any idea that he was a single man or a widowed man. That he had kids. I didn't know he was American. I didn't have any idea. I mean, I just, I just didn't. Where did it go from your meeting at the nightclub? Did he suddenly say, did he ask you out from then on? He did. He did ask me out that night. You know, there's that story that he just had, he had great clothes on and he had 
like a Levi jacket, and, and I wanted to say, this jacket doesn't go together with the rest of your clothes. So I said, that's just a terrible jacket. And he said, well, if I promise to put on my best suit tomorrow night, can I take you out? So we went out. And from then on, it was no looking back? Mm-hmm. No looking back. Yeah, we started dating pretty much straight ahead. I think it was really wonderful for for me to have met Roa on my journey, personal journey at that particular time. But I think it was very important for Roa to have had met me because the days ahead, losing the two kids and 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 different things. Um, we were da- we dated two months and he had lost the kids. Oh, he always said it really helped his spiritual path to have had me by his side. How did your parents feel about you at 17, disappearing with a rock star? Well, um, first I lied and didn't tell him that, that I even had met Roy. Then I told him I had met Roy, but I, I didn't kind of tell him that he was really a single man. And then by that time, Roy had lost uh, the two kids, you know, which happened very, very sudden. He was in England, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. He was touring here. He was in Bournemouth. And the fire happened in the afternoon, Tennessee time, so it uh, is in the middle of the night for us here. And the next morning, Roy, of course, flew first flight home. How did it affect you both? You know, that immense loss was, of course, Roy's, because, I mean, obviously they were not my sons. But um, just the human tragedy of, of losing two kids and, and the pain is such, so, so immense to think that you lose two kids at the same time and then you lose them to a fire. It's just a really grave blow. What effect did it have on him? Did you see a big change in his character and personality? No. I never have seen a, a change in, in Roy's character. I always have said, like, after Roy passed on, all of a sudden it occurred to me from the first time, the time at the inn club, at the inn time, you know, when he was obviously trying to ask me out for a date. And to the last time I said goodbye to him, which was about 20, more than 20 years we were together. There were not many times, and when I said many times, I probably could count them on this hand, that Roy wasn't the same man as nice to me, or as courteous, or as sweet, or, or humorous, or um, attentive. Nonetheless, after losing his first wife and losing his children, one always imagines him to be a very sad and lonely man. Was that the case? I don't think he was sad, and I don't think he was lonely. I just don't. I mean, he had a great sense of, of humor. In fact, his sense of humor was truly British, so you know he had totally wacky, wacky sense of humor. And I have seen him sad, but I have seen him happy too, you know. Do you think all the sadness was channeled into his songs, though? Because they are terribly sad songs, most of them. He would tell you they wouldn't. They were not sad songs, because he said in the end he always got the girl. You know, in Running Scared, mm, sure. I mean, she walks off with him. You know, in Pretty Woman, she comes back. Roy always would have told you that that to write a sad song, I mean, for him personally, you really already would have had to have walked through that experience. Roy always said that he couldn't really write while he was in that experience, you know, while he was sad. So, so you have to make it to the other side already. To what extent did he discuss sad things with you, the sad part of his life? We b- both were really, really intense. And he was the most honest man that I ever met. I mean, we, we talked all the time. But in 20 years, we never, we never went to, to eat out, and he would read his paper, and I would read my paper. We were always like 
in, in, in process. So I got to know him really, really well, of course, and I got to know his innermost part. At the end of Roy's career, at the end of his life, which was, I guess, not the end of the career, but his life, I remember him saying over and over again to interviews, he said, I understand that in life, in the rock and roll world, or life overall, I was handed the role of the lonely, sad man of rock and roll. You know, Mick Jagger plays a different role, John Lennon, everybody is, you know, handed a role. And even if you look at groups, the Beatles have a different group than the Rolling Stones, you know, than the Beach Boys. So Roy would say, you know, I have been assigned to play the lonely and the sad man of rock and roll, and not only that, they will call me pudgy and pale. He said, I just came back from Tahiti. I'm as brown as it gets. You see Barbara, he would point at me. You see my three kids just running around this suite, and you can see the laughter and everything, and by the time you leave, you the interviewer, whatever I tell you right now is he was sad, he was lonely, he was pale, he was slightly overweight, you know, pudgy, and, uh, and you will write like about Claudette, and you will write about the fire, and he said, it just, he said, I ain't playing the part anymore. You know, I played it enough, give it to somebody else, find somebody else and assign it to. That was Roy, I mean, he, and the other part is that I'm always being asked, and, and Roy was asked to, you know, I met him in 68, and then like in the 70s, I think he charted two records, and he did like probably three albums or something like that, and you, usually like, you, you say, so what happened to him in the 70s? But I finally just, in interviews, always say he's a, he was a really good kisser. Because we met in 68, and we didn't move to Germany to run away from the, from the memories or anything like that. We got married in 69. We got, like, our first kid in, at the end of 1970. We had Wesley, so we had two kids. By that time, we had, like, probably a couple of nannies. We had probably seven dogs. We had lots of cars everywhere. And we would just hop planes. What date was your wedding? Where was your wedding? My wedding was March, I think it's March the 25th, 1969, in uh, Tennessee. And from that point on, we would probably live in England four months out of the year. We would probably be in Germany like a month, maybe two months, if we went over Christmas skiing. We had a house in southern France. We had a place in Florida. We always had a place in California. And we just did whatever we wanted to. And see, the amazing thing about Roy was that Roy never was his career. I mean, he had so many other interests. He always wanted to. I mean, we, you know, it wasn't like, and he never, he never would read the charts. I mean, I basically um, just got to know the man. I mean, it, it wasn't like Roy never was his tours or his, uh, his records. Were many people jealous of you? Did you get a hard time from fans and so on? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I couldn't feel that for, for a long time because I, I'm not a jealous person, so, so I never, never could feel that till later on, yeah, but there were people that, that were jealous of me or felt threatened by me, and even, uh, you know, within the family, and within Roy's family. Right. And that's very traditional, too. You know, Roy was a southern boy, you know, like Elvis, like Tammy. Mm-hmm. Tammy's not a boy, but first one to break out of his family system to make good, so the whole family sort of like all of a sudden only see themselves through the eyes of the person that makes good. And it doesn't have to be a rock and roller. It could be a doctor, 
how was that shown, that uh, jealousy? Did they sort of reject you, as it were? Well, no, it wasn't like rejection, but, I mean, it's like, you know, deep down, I mean, Roy, you know, Roy is one of their, it's blood, and, and you are not. But, but the, the grace of all of that was I had a wonderful, wonderful relationship, probably the strongest male relationship that I had in my life next to Roy being my husband, I found a real ally in my father-in-law. So that was, he was, he was an incredible man. Did the rest of his family come to accept you in due course? Um, you know, I still support them. I still, uh, I have been in their lives now for 25 years, I guess. And I, tr- I truly have loved um, I, I truly have loved them. And really learned to understand them and, and where their, their particular fears were coming from. Yeah, it's it's okay. It's okay. Thank God the numbers are shrinking. Now, you and Roy had two children, mm-hmm. you said. Can you give me their names and dates of birth? Uh-huh. We had Roy Kelton, two names, which were both Roy's. He was born the 18th of October, 1970. And we had Alexander Orby Lee. That was Roy's dad's name, by the way. His name was Orby Lee Orbison. And he was born the 25th of May, 1975. And then we have Wesley, who was born uh, the 13th of May, 1965. Right. So those are the three boys. The Wesley's from From the previous. first marriage, huh? Right, the only surviving one. Yeah, yeah. How difficult was it for you, following in the footsteps of his much-publicized first marriage and also, obviously, his first wife, Claudette? It wasn't difficult at all. I never, until you asked me this question, I never even thought about it. It was not part of, part of my life. I mean, Wesley was part of my life. My being widowed, I think, was completely different than Roy's being widowed. Roy already, by the time he was widowed, I have to put this on, um, had walked through a divorce. You know, he had just remarried Claudette because they had gotten... Uh, so he had, by the time 66 came and, and Roy was widowed and Claudette died, he had been divorced for two years from Claudette. And so that relationship was completely different and left him emotionally in a different place to be widowed because um, you know they had gotten remarried for for obviously different reasons than than uh, just being in love with one another they had another kid that was born wrestling so i mean i that that was so much part of another lifetime that roy had i mean i don't know i never gave it any thought mm. Did you and Roy sit down early on and discuss your, the extent of your involvement in his career? No. I mean, would you sit down with a girl and you say, so what is your involvement going to be? You're, no, no. You just, you know, whether it's career, whether you call it career, uh, or picking out a pair of shoes or holding somebody uh, while they need to be held, I mean, that's just part of having a life together, you know? You know, I had dreams for Roy, and he had dreams for himself. And Roy just asked me to help out, and it was, it was as much emotionally uh, as uh, to hold that vision, you know? Because if you have a vision in life, it's really important that you find somebody else, whether it's your wife or your mom or whoever, to hold that vision for you, because it's much more powerful, you know? And you can see it in history always whether you go for Lincoln and you have Mary Lincoln or you go for John Lennon and you can see Paul or, you know, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger or, you know, Brian Epstein did it for the Beatles. You know, I mean, it's, it's always, it takes usually two people 
to do that. Did you sort of become Roy's manager in any way? Because it was. Well, I did. I did, but again, you know, that was just like a natural step. We made a deal uh, with one another. We made many deals, so it wasn't just about the business. And it was basically in 1985 in December. And what I agreed to do that for three years that I would put my the dreams that I had for myself on hold and I would support Roy in making another album. And you know, and it wasn't like when you asked me, it wasn't like, you know, we sat down whether it was twenty years ago or five or something and and he would say, so how much are you going to be involved in my, in, in my career? You know, it was like Roy gave like 150% to me in whatever I wanted to do at any given time. And what did you want to do? Did you just want to be with him and support him? I don't, I don't think I ever was that selfless that I would have dedicated my life or, or given my life up just because two people love one another and, and, and spend lots of time with one another and we, and we really... Um, you know, spend lots of time, physical, um, hourly time with one another. Doesn't mean that um, you don't have a really, really strong personal journey in front of, of you at any given time. And part of part of my relationship with Roy was so wonderful because I, I, both of us really, really were pretty independent thinkers and. Uh, to what extent was yours a stereotypical rock star marriage? I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm really good friends with some of the other wives of rock stars. And let me see, what, what would be our common ground? Our common ground would be probably, you know, there's a really fascinating book out about Picasso's life, Picasso and his women. And it's really good to read because it really shows you what sides females traditionally have held in lives of of um, very creative, genius-type men. Anyway, well, we all travel, I guess. You know, that gypsy, sort of gypsy life. How normal a life could you lead together, anyway? I see, to me, it felt really normal. I know today that it prob- probably wasn't normal because, for example, even hotels or something like that, I always have considered, like, uh, certain hotels in the world and their suites, like my home, you know? Like here, I mean, that when I get... In a taxi here, they all come and wave. And when I check in, I mean, you know, I have luggage here. Um, I have winter clothes here. I don't know what would be typical. I, see, I wouldn't even know what it would mean to be in a typical relationship. So I'm not the right one to ask. I don't know. Life, life with, with a rock star, like with Roy, probably the freedom of going anywhere in the world at any given time. Wasn't he pestered everywhere he went, though? There was times that, that uh, lots of the hotels, like I said, I never have seen the dining rooms. Now I know dining rooms mm-hmm. or breakfast rooms. Before I would know elevators upstairs. Uh, yeah, I would never, I would, you know, room service, that's as close as it would come. And the porter went for everything. I thought, mm-hmm. like, porters were just downstairs to run out for things. But then Roy, Roy could really uh, protect himself. If he wanted to go out, like he went, he went out car shopping quite a bit, and we went antique hunting and everything like that. And Roy was really good because if he came up to us for um, drugs, you know, what do you have to do? Eleven o'clock drug. How often did he wear his dark glasses off stage, and uh, how many he pairs did he have? Glasses all the time. How many pairs did he have? Not that many. Roy didn't. I mean, 
like his guitars or his glasses or something like that. They were just like everything was there for use. How did you feel about that aspect of his image and other aspects of his image compared to the real Roy? That was the real Roy. I mean, I wear glasses with a, with a little tint in them. You get really used to it, and you don't have to make eye contact. So it's kind of nice. Have you still got Roy's glasses, Roy's sunglasses? I actually gave a pair. There's a great exhibition now at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I think Roy's glasses are there, and there is a touring guitar, and there's lyrics and stuff like that. What was he like to live with? Was he quite easy? And one imagines rock stars to be quite temperamental. He was really easy. He was really sweet. I don't know how else we could have stayed together for 20 years. He was really good. To what extent was he career-orientated? Um, I know he loved to sing. I know he really loved to tour. In a strange way, he really loved performing. You can see that he really didn't care where he had to go to play. He would show up in the darndest places and play. Did he care that he couldn't quite emulate his success from the 60s? In the 70s, he was making more money than in the 60s. Mm. He was touring, and he was playing to larger crowds than in the 60s. He was probably more well-known in the 70s than in the 60s, by sight and by name. And, you know, in in the 70s, the music was sort of like, oh, too. Mm. You have to remember that the music was not really familiar. There was like a real time in the 70s that musically it was not really a good place to be. How satisfied with his career do you think Roy was by the time he died? Oh, incredibly satisfied. I don't think he could have, he could have left on a higher note. From your point of view, from you and him, do you think there was a lot of life left unfilled between the two of you? Did you have many plans together? You know, we probably had lots of earthly plans together, like where to live next, because we actually uh, were going to move to New York and, and to Paris. And all the, the dreams that you have, you know, to see another country, um, paint another picture, you know, do something with the kids. But on a spiritual note, I think it was pretty much concluded. Were you with Roy when he died? No, I was not. I actually was in Germany. It was before Christmas. I had said goodbye. We went to Paris for a week at the end of November, the last week of November, and then we had come here into London for four days. And Roy flew on. He had uh, a concert in Boston and his last concert in Akron, Ohio. And then he was going to go back to Nashville, which he did, to basically um, bring the uh, Christmas gifts to his mother, his brother, and his son. And he died there. It must be a source of great regret that you weren't with him at the time, I imagine. No, it's actually not a source of regret. I think it was God's gift to me, because I, I think I probably couldn't have survived. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. Did you have a sixth sense that it was going to happen? No, no, never thought about it, really. Um, I actually knew that somebody was going to die, but I thought it was one of my parents. That's why I was in Germany visiting with them. When you say you thought you knew somebody was going to die, what do you mean? I, I just I just thought at the end of that year, in fact, when while we were in Paris, because it, I hadn't planned to necessarily stay in Europe, I just felt that I really wanted to go see my parents. You know, I'm very close with my parents. I see them intermittently. But I just felt a real sense of, um, 
my mother lives in Munich now, not in Bielefeld, where I was raised. And so I told Roy, I said, you know, I think I want to fly into Munich, and I pick her up, and I take her back to my hometown. You know, one more time, that trip into into her past and my past and who I was, and to spend that time with her. And and my father lives in that town, so because they're not together anymore. So I was going to visit with him too, because I had a sense of loss. How ill had Roy been? Was he had a few heart problems. Well, yeah, he had um, open heart surgery in 1979, I think, or 78. But that was 10 years, and he had felt really, really great. And he had, you know, like like when you think about heart problems, you probably think that they're like something that's daily with you. But Roy, before his open heart surgery in 1978, he had chest pains like for a week. And then he never had chest pains again, you know. So you don't think about uh, somebody being sick. May we know the last sort of conversation you had together? Yeah. Uh, Roy called me, and uh, I was at my mother's house. He basically said that, uh, you know, that he was basically coming back to England. He had, you know, he was in a group called the Wilburys at the end. And there was an ongoing conversation um, between all the Wilburys where to do the next video. You know, they had done one for Handle with Care, and they felt they needed, or the record company felt they needed another one. And Roy basically wanted, because he was in America already, he wanted to really stay in America to do the video. And George Harrison was in England. He's been trying to call me like everywhere in Germany to see if Roy wouldn't come back to uh, England to do that video because everybody else wanted to come. I guess Dylan and Roy were the only ones that were holding out for America. And so basically he said that, Roy said, you know, don't, he said, I talk with George. And um, he said, I'm going to come back to England. And the good news about that is because he said, when I get off the plane, I will see your smiling eyes. He said, for that I would take any plane anywhere because he really didn't want to come back, because he felt really tired and he wanted to stay in America. And so that was it. What's your last memory of him? Uh, kissing him goodbye at the St. James Club here in London. Do you often go past the St. James Club? Um, only have gone by there. I never have stayed there again. Where's Roy buried? Roy's buried in Los Angeles, in a part of town that's called Westwood, and it's a, c- a cemetery right in that part of Westwood, which Westwood has a uh, university and lots of movie theaters, and Roy really liked going to the movies. And it is like uh, a green patch in the midst of the city with palm trees. And uh, it's just beautiful, be- beautiful little place. And then later on I found out that Marilyn Monroe is buried there. So he's in good company. Mm. Do you next often go to, there yourself? Next to going to the movies and hanging mm. with Marilyn. Do I go there? You know... I, you ha- I have to pass from Malibu when I go into, into L.A. and I don't take the freeway. You would have to pass that location. Do I go there? I go there on occasions. Uh, I have Roy in my heart. I take him wherever he needs to go. Has so. it become quite a shrine for the fans at uh, Cemetery now? Yeah, I would imagine. I have kept it real quiet where he is. I mean, I'm... Uh, 
I told you. I have a, I have kept it pretty quiet. But I mean, there are flowers all the time. Then certain things. So, you know. Do you have any particular feelings about what happens to someone after they die? Yeah, I do. I believe that energetically they're very mu- much still part mm-hmm. of this life. If you look for things, they really let you know they're around. I don't think the relationship with the other soul ends when, when they physically leave this earth. I remember my boys saying afterwards, you know, they said, you know, Dad is just in a different form of energy. You know, he still is around. You say there are little things that give that indication. Can you tell me some of the little things in your case? I don't know. I feel Roy's presence. I feel his humor quite a bit. Little things just happen, and I, I don't... I, I, I can't recall them right now. Little things not only happen to me, but people around me. You know, George Harrison said it real nice, I think, after Roy was gone, and he said, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, the person is still around, just in a different sort of energy. I really believe in the life after, right. after him. I mean, it would, be, it would be a terrible thought for me personally to think that, that if I would leave this earth, that that would be it. After Roy died, though, how did you feel about facing your life on your own? How were you feeling about it then? Well, you know, strangely enough, you're rarely prepared for anything in life that you have to walk through. You know, you're being taught everything in school, and that society feels that you need to know, and hardly anything that they give you has anything to do with real life, with what you need to do. Did you vow to keep his memory alive, as it were, when he died? No, 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 that doesn't, I I don't. There were just certain things that needed to be done, like Mystery Girl and and the Traveling Bulbers were were doing pretty good, and and then I did a tribute. And that was, again, um, for charity. I raised, like, $2 million for the homeless in America. I have an Orbison house that uh, supports... 27 <coughs> mentally retarded homeless people. And, uh, and you know, it's a house where they sleep and everything. And they have actually been rehabilitated, so they're able to, to hold jobs, and I'm really proud of that. And uh, there's a library for the homeless and a shelter. I have a woman's shelter that I support. So I did, I did a tribute, but again, it wasn't like necessarily to keep the memory of Roy Orbison alive. It was just that it was a year later, and since I had a celebration of life for Roy and not a funeral, there were not the traditional parts or there was not the traditional way of having concluded grief. So I felt it would be really good to do a tribute and to raise money for friends and uh, peers to come together and, and to conclude the, the grief, you know. So and that's what we did. And then I had some record releases. I mean, I don't. I have a I have a music company. You know, I have a publishing company and a record label, but I have other artists too, you know. Still working. Roy's been paid many tributes since he died. How do you think he'd have felt about them? He would have loved every single one of them. Yeah, he's very proud of Yeah, he really I mean, he said it at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, you know. He said just to belong, you know. I mean, it's a wonderful part and if you think about it as much as those uh, rebels, and that's what they were. It's tough for, I think, to look at Roy Orbison and consider him a rebel when he was considered just a gentleman and pretty uh, quiet, shy man. But he definitely was a rebel, and he was a rebel for his music because, you know, there is 
I'm listening to tapes coming back to this this project. You know, the the music that Roy played long before it was known as rockabilly was so different than anything else that was out, you know. There was black music in those days. There was traditional country music and swing or big band music. And then when you listen to this 17-year-old kid, Roy, you know, play, uh, I mean, a, a complete different guitar, you know, rockabilly guitar. And, uh, and again, you know, this is before rockabilly came about. And to do traditional country songs, but in a complete different take, it's amazing. So, so the vision that he had for that sort of music, I always said, you know, he had a dream in his heart and, uh, and a melody on his lips. And to have, have gone the distance that, that he, he, he went, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he had to be very forceful and, and completely um, swimming against stream because in those days it wasn't necessarily celebrated to be different and and he and Elvis used to kid all the time in the sev- in the 70s in the 70s they did kid but i mean in the 50s they would always say i wonder if we are still going to be popular in 6 months you know because they didn't know if their form of music would last and then then coming back to that question you said if Roy would have been proud or how would he have felt about the tributes or I think he would have been immensely pr- proud because, I mean, just to belong is a wonderful feeling, you know. And in that last Rolling Stone interview that he concluded, I guess, two weeks before his death, he's, I guess the guy said, so how would you like to be remembered? And uh, Roy just smiled and he said, I would just like to be remembered. And he didn't put anything in front of her in, uh, 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 I mean, he didn't. He didn't say, "Well, I would like to be remembered this or the other way," but just like to be remembered as whatever. And that's that really describes who Roy was. And that is, he always allowed you, the person across from him. And I, when I said you, it might have been me as the wife, his son, you know, the boy across from him as his son, or the musician in the band. He allowed you to be exactly the person that you needed to be at that particular time. You mentioned Elvis Presley. Who were Roy's close friends? Oh, I don't know. You know, Johnny Cash was a lifetime close friend, for example. You know, many. How difficult was it for you coping without Roy to begin with? You know, it must have been terrible difficult, but that German part of me probably just pushed me through a little bit more. You know, if it wouldn't have been for my children and for the love, that unconditional love of my friends around me, they just all circled in. And when I say friends, it was even like the record company, like Virgin was incredible. You know, the guys that ran Virgin or, um, you know, people that I had worked with, that just completely surrounded me and, and supported me. And, you know, it was incredible, too, for me to have felt, again, it's like a, it's like a double-sided sword, you know, because after Roy died, I, I felt so invaded because I felt the whole world was moving in, you know, because, I mean, I, I felt at all times, you know, that, I mean, I had this personal relationship with Roy, and then the world felt, you know, they had a relationship, of course, mm-hmm. with him, and I felt, like, really violated, and I, because I, I, just, I, I just felt it was really invasive. But the other side of it, that I really could feel the love and the support from the fan, you know, that loved Roy all the world, mm-hmm. that helped me. It was a tremendous comfort. Was it difficult listening to his music to begin with? Oh, yeah. I mean, everything was difficult. Every, every day in those days, those very fresh and raw days, 
I mean, every minute you travel a million miles, you know, you hear one word that reminds you, or you see a picture, or, or you know, of course, for me it was, you know, usually when you're when you're widowed, you don't, you know, I think 99% probably of all women or men that have been widowed probably don't even have like a spoken word of their spouse, you know? Because, I mean, why would you... Mm. Now you have movie cameras these mm. days, so you might. But mm. before, you know, you didn't have movie mm. cameras, or if you did, they didn't have sound. You didn't use tape recorders to record somebody. You know, today somebody probably would pass on and you would be... You have somebody saying on the answering machine, hello, this is so-and-so, call back, you know? <laughs> but with me, of course, I had that all those songs that, that were forever invading you because you can't shut them out. Um, you know, the boys and I, we have been in Australia on a ferry, and uh, the uh, guy that ran the boat must have been an Orbison fan because he had, like, the greatest hits in the Wilburys for three hours on, and he had mixed it down himself, you know? Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's just every minute that you survive, when you lose somebody, you travel a million miles and it's up and down and up and down. So it's tremendous. It's a, such a tough time. To what extent do you think Roy's been given the credit that he deserves? Oh, he gets that credit every day. That doesn't have anything to do with me in keeping his uh, memory alive or however you want to call it. It's incredible. I mean, it's incredible mm-hmm. the honor that the world has given to that Texan, Roy Orbison. It's incredible. But, you know, it, it's it's... My mother would say it's a well-earned place that because, because he was a good guy. He was a good guy. And, you know, strangely enough, you know what is nice, too? That the, that the fans or the world finally allowed one of their heroes to die a hero. That's kind of nice, you know? What ambitions do you still have for his memory? That's maybe, if you want to call it an ambition that I have for Roy's music, that uh, it's, it always will either soothe a soul or inspire a soul or you know Roy always said his voice was a gift from God that's what he said about his voice and about his touring he always said wherever I'm being called to play I usually go and he said I always treat it like if I step on stage and for that hour if I can relieve one person in that audience of their everyday struggles not even like big drama every day it was worth for me to travel and to and to do that for that reason, I would love that that his music would stay on the airwaves, or that you could buy it in in a in a form of a CD or a tape, because music is so healing, you know.